0: Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I was Richard III. Five standing ovations.
1: This is TJ. And this is something we're calling Unserious Film People. Don't adjust your headphones. You heard me correctly. This is Unserious Film People, an offshoot of our main podcast, which we like to call Serious Film People. And I guess this is like a a side quest you know
0: a, a galaxy quest if you will
1: a, ga- <laughs> a galaxy quest yeah this is uh, this is bonus the bonus content
0: yes the b-sides the deep cuts yeah this is the yeah. upside oh, no. down
1: not even deep cuts no i think this is actually like maybe even like you know the hits possibly the radio the radio hits not i was gonna say cuts.
0: i would i would argue they're also not really even b-sides because some of the things we have in store for you are better than some of the movies that were nominated for best picture
1: the point being, this is, uh, I guess, what we intend to put on Patreon uh, outside of the main feed. This episode might end up on the main feed as a teaser. We're not sure yet, but uh, this is a new series for Patreon listeners only where we discuss movies that may not be frequently brought up in circles of serious film people, but maybe they should because they kind of rule is is what we're going <laughs> to claim, I think. Ken, that's, what do you
0: think? That's the definition, yeah.
2: Yeah, I was going to say they're worth, they're worth our time. They're worth, they're worth. everyone's time to take a look, and uh, yeah, hopefully you enjoy
1: them. TJ, do you have a do you have a more specific definition of what makes an unserious film person movie? What qualifies?
0: Not particularly. When we were drafting okay, this, just whatever on, we want. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, it's purposefully an empty term, like gaslighting.
1: Um, <laughs> so so is serious film people, by the way. Yeah, said in our first episode. Yeah,
0: it is something which we can constantly move the goalposts. Basically, what an unserious film is is a movie not nominated for Best Picture that we just mm. freaking like and want to watch and talk about. So,
2: and that we and to be clear, it's not one that we're necessarily saying should have been in the uh, Oscar that's conversation. An important, that's an yes. important distinction. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um it's it, we're not saying this should have been a contender or anything like that. We're just saying you know what. This film, this film is worth watching in some way, shape, or form. Hey Ken, that would make
0: a great segment to do. The the
2: should have been a contender. Yeah, why why it's... isn't that a brilliant idea? <laughs> well, I was
1: about to bring that up because that you know stay tuned. That could also be a forthcoming Patreon series. Uh, should have been a contender, as I've also teased in the main feed as well. Um, so I think that I would say the only criterion singular for criteria, criteria. yes well yes. done the only criterion mm-hmm. yeah there's the english teacher on this podcast and it's not me uh the only criterion <laughs> for an unserious film person movie is that it could not have been nominated for best picture and we would say that it's correct that it was not nominated for best picture because if we think it should have been nominated then that puts it into a different category i.e should have been a contender to be and f- this is not that good sure, that,
2: good distinction. That look- that literally that literally broadens it to the point of of basically it's the opposite of narrowing it we're're we're yeah. saying instead of being the narrow the narrower scope of film that was either nominated for best Picture or should have been it's literally anything else anything, anything else it is
0: a large Venn diagram
2: yes but you know we're only going
1: to talk about stuff that like either one or two or all three of us really really like. And recommend, basically. I was actually, so I was thinking about this earlier today, and I thought about uh, Chuck Klosterman's book of essays, Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, which was hugely popular in the early 2000s. And every cool kid in our high school read it. And I didn't read it until I was like 28. So that tells you how behind the times I am. This is
0: Josh's literature corner first on the (laughs) podcast here. I, Uh, I don't know if
1: Chuck Klosterman's literature necessarily, but.
0: I did not, but that should have been evident when you said every cool kid in high school read it sure
1: yeah yeah well if you're if you're unfamiliar uh as the name of the book of essays kind of implies it's a very like um uh irreverent but also smart book of essays Where he, he basically takes like low culture stuff and treats it as if it was it treats it with an academic kind of lens so he talks about um mtv's the real world which was fairly new at the time when he wrote it he writes about uh billy joel's glass houses which is like the most uncool thing for people in the 80s and 90s but he kind of like gives it a, a new reassessment and you know talks again talks about unserious things in a serious way i guess is the best way to put it he he takes silly things seriously and that's kind of what i think that's kind of what i'm aiming for with this is like movies that Serious film people may, not, may turn the noses up at, but like we certainly don't. Is that fair?
0: And that's really what the plot of Galaxy Quest is. is it kind of is. <laughs> people taking something unserious very seriously.
1: <laughs> in its own way. Yeah, that's kind of maybe the, the meta text, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, as you've alluded a couple times now, Galaxy Quest is our first entry in unserious film people. And I believe this was a pick from T.J. Keeley. So TJ, why did you why did you pick this?
0: Hmm. Why does anyone do anything, Josh? <laughs> uh, I, we were trying to brainstorm a list of potential films for this segment, and we did not really have a definition of the segment yet. But and I think
1: we all came up with a lot of movies very quickly, though. Yeah, we did. We did. We did yeah. So it was yeah.
0: kind of like feeling it out by identifying it. And I had actually just watched this about like a month or two ago for the like 47 thousandth time maybe <laughs> and it has always struck me as a movie that like I, guilty pleasure is not a good word but whenever it comes up in conversation i end up saying that i like it but then i have to go into this thing where i'm like okay but it actually is pretty good we're like i feel like yeah. i need to yeah. to defend my liking of it um and I just thought it would be an interesting one to talk about because I do think it's kind of, I think it's deceptively good. I think if you just read about it or saw the poster or saw the trailer, you'd be like, this is a waste of my time. Um This, you know, this is not Bicycle Thieves, that's clear, but um <laughs> I I do think it is like really, really solid, finely tuned. I think it's appeals to a lot of people. Um, yes, yeah, so that's why I suggested it.
1: Uh, I agree with all the things you said. Um, I guess I should say that I I hadn't seen this before you suggested it for this podcast. I watched it for the first time yesterday, and uh, I have it on mute right now as we're as we're speaking about it. So I'm watching it for the one and a half time <laughs> right now. You're welcome. By the way, <laughs> yes, thank you. I mean, I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll respond to your wel- you're mm-hmm. your welcome with a thank you. Uh, mm-hmm. Ken, how about yourself? Have you have you seen this? You've you've seen this more than me, I think, right? Oh yeah, less I, than TJ.
2: I saw this when it came out. I remember going to see it with uh, at least my dad, and I have I owned. I remember owning a VHS co- VHS copy at one point, and wow. then uh, then a. Uh, I, I've since purchased a Blu Ray copy, um, but yeah, I watch this once every every couple of years, and I'll be honest. I've probably seen it most often when it's one of those movies that's playing on television and I'm scrolling around. It's like, oh, I'll just put this on in the background and then it ends up not yeah. being the background. It becomes the focal point of what I'm doing at that moment. <laughs> Perfect. So, um, C- yeah, So Ken pushes
0: those law briefs aside. I'm sorry, Your Honor. Galaxy Quest was on last <laughs> night. I fully understand.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what? Sometimes the real world just needs to take a pause, take a breather. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not be so serious, take things so seriously about itself. Um, which is appropriate, because this film is a brilliant satire.
1: It is. So that, I think, we maybe need to start... Well, let's let's start with what the movie is. Uh, TJ, do you want to set it up or do you want me to set it up?
0: I, Josh, I think you should, because you've got fresh
1: eyes to it. I do have fresh eyes. Okay. So we open with what we soon learn to soon learn is footage of an old tv show an old star trek-esque tv show basically star trek but it's called something else um and we are at a convention for the you know not trekkies but trekkies uh who are big fans of the show and it's like some decades later after the show has been off the air but like the actors are you know appearing at this convention most of whom would rather be elsewhere um and they include uh tim allen and Sigourney Weaver in some great casting on both accounts. Yes. Uh, Alan Rickman. <laughs> uh, also great. And um, uh, uh, Tony Shaloub and uh, an actor who I'd never seen before by the name of?
0: Daryl Mitchell.
1: Yeah. Who is it?
0: Daryl Mitchell as Tommy Darryl Weber. Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: Tommy Weber. Uh, all respect to Daryl Mitchell. I'm sure you were had a great career outside of this. Also, a uh, younger version of Daryl Mitchell played by Corbin Blue of High School Musical Fame for really? about 5 seconds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in huh. the uh, in the actual be... in the actual footage of the old show this yep. character is like a child that's played by Corbin Blue <laughs> which made me laugh. Yeah, um, me,
2: I think I think it's described by the um, Sam Rockwell character that the the I think the last episode aired in 1982. Mm. And so we're basically just under we're almost 20 years removed from so, this came show. out in
1: 1999, so yeah, yep. just shy of 20 years. And uh, just to move it along, basically, uh, Tim Allen's character is approached by what we later learned to be actual aliens who have seen the show they were on. Was the show called Galaxy Quest? It was. Yes. Right? Yeah. The, the historical se- documents. Yes, They have <laughs> seen Galaxy Quest. Mistake it for actual historical documents, as you just said, because they kind of like their alien species doesn't really like understand performance or acting or... Or any kind of deception, basically. They, yeah, they, just
0: they have no irony at all. Yeah, no irony. Yeah. There you go.
1: And uh, so their alien race is under attack by these this bad guy named Saris And because they believe Tim Allen and his crew were like actual, you know, what, not, not warriors, but when, you know, they went on missions and, yeah. and bested bad guys all the time. So they're trying to enlist their help in besting Ceres and saving their alien race. And... That's just a great, a great fucking premise. That's an insanely good premise. I love it. Um, so I guess I want to ask first, what's your, what's your two uh, re- relationship to Star Trek? I feel like that's where you need to start here. DJ, any relationship <sighs> to Star Trek?
0: Very, very little. I think the only Star Trek I've seen, and if anybody's listening to this that is a Trekkie, they're probably gonna like lose their minds. But I think the only Star Trek I've seen is the first JJ Abrams one. Hmm. Um, yeah. Other otherwise. I mean, I'm aware of it and the the very basic things because I live in the culture, Um, you know, it's it's rather ubiquitous, but I am by I've not seen a single episode of the television show nor any of the old movies.
1: Ken, I think Star Trek debuted when you were about 25. So, did you uh, did you I, check I, that out? Back yeah, today? this was
2: this was this was actually around I think my 30th birthday. Um, <laughs> the <laughs> friends <laughs> no, with Gene Roddenberry, uh, <laughs> exactly. We used to play poker together. Um, <laughs> I uh, I have seen some episodes of the original series. I do remember watching while I was growing up quite a bit more of Next Generation. That was the Star Trek mm. series that would have been on in the uh, 90s. Um, that's with patrick stewart right correct that's the one starring patrick stewart yep and um engage i have uh seen all of the movies at at least once um i don't i don't remember all of them it's been a while since i've seen some of them and um yeah they're they're not they're not a particular favorite of mine let's put it that way um but I have I've seen I've experienced quite a bit of Star Trek. I would not say I'm a Trekkie and I and I certainly have not seen enough to claim to be any kind of expert on the subject. Um, I've seen just enough to be familiar with it.
0: Yeah, I think I think to the point, um, you don't need to know a whole lot about it to know that Jason Nesmith, the Tim Allen character is Captain Kirk. Right. Is the right. William Shatner character. And Alan Rickman is the uh, Spock character. Yeah, right and, and that yeah. They, yeah that they have that kind of general dynamic there. So
2: yeah in fact you and, don't I don't think you have to be a Trek you don't have to be even even basically knowledgeable well, I guess you have to ha- you have to understand that Star Trek exists, but you don't have to have that much knowledge about Star Trek to appreciate this movie at all.
0: I was curious about that because I do appreciate this movie and don't know anything about Star Trek and I was wondering if there's like nuggets or Easter eggs in there for hardcore Trekkies or if it just was kind of like, hey, You all know this space TV
2: show that everyone knows about? It's certainly referencing... So Star Trek obviously involves a lot of shows, a lot of different movies, a lot of characters, and a lot of, you know, worlds and and Mm -hmm. creatures and species. But this movie is clearly referencing the original series, which I think only lasted a couple of seasons. So it wasn't even that long of a show. Um, And to some degree, this film is not only sending up the fandom... But it's also sending up the behind-the-scenes stories that mm-hmm. Trekkies di- dove into and like to talk about when they got together and that the media like to talk about. The fact that there always seemed to be a little bit of tension between William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, um, mm. that <laughs> William Shatner often irritated the other cast members. There there are these stories and these rumors and the, these kind of pop culture um, bits of knowledge about the show that play into this movie more so, I think, than the actual series. Mm-hmm. um That's say that that said, they do try very hard to make the 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 historical documents, as we call them, look very similar to the original series. Mm-hmm. The fact oh, that yeah. they it yeah. looks it looks cheap, and that's in en- that's accurate to what Star Trek. I mean, it was not when, a huge when their
1: when their ship gets hit by something, all the characters like. Wave around (laughs) as if as if they're off balance, but Mm -hmm. like clearly they're not. Yes, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um. So I I guess I should say I haven't seen a single second of either a Star Trek TV show or a Star Trek movie. Wow. Not the original. Not Deep Space Nine. Not Voyager. Not Next Generation. Not J.J. Abrams. Not not any of them. So,
0: Josh, (laughs) you got to get out. (laughs) Here's a here's a ten dollar bill. Go see a Star (laughs) (laughs) Wars.
1: Yeah, I need to touch grass and go watch Star Trek, I guess, right? Uh (laughs) That's an ironic statement. Um, (laughs) I think my first exposure to Star Trek when I was in first grade, and my teacher, my first grade teacher was a uh, Trekkie, and that was the first time I'd heard that phrase, too. Yeah, I had to go. She told us to go home and ask our parents what Trekkie meant. And I did, and I learned. Oh, my teacher's a nerd. I guess <laughs> at least back back in when I was in first grade, which was 1997. That's like the connotation was: if you are into Star mm-hmm. Trek or Star Wars, you're a nerd. And um, I think in this movie, the people that are into Galaxy Quest are are nerds in in like a very loving sense. Because yeah. while they are a little like they're not the butt of any jokes, or a little bit, but like in, in the first like segment when they're at the convention, like. They're not shown in the most positive light, I guess, but, like, they do end up saving the day, ultimately. Yeah,
0: right? and, well, and to that point, they, yeah, these aren't people you necessarily want to go have, out and have a beer with, but what the the setup does is they they look corny when Jason's kind of buying in with all those people, and he's like, oh, yeah, and then if I had moved just a little bit farther to the left, and you're like, oh, God, these he's people are eating to he's regaling them up. with
1: tails, yeah. Yeah, yeah
0: but yeah. when he comes back from the toilet, and is like, there's no spaceship, he heard, it's all just he BS. Heard people, he yeah. heard people
1: in the bathroom making fun of him and his castmates for being there at all in the first place. Yeah, So yeah. he like feels bad about it and then goes off on the fans. When he
0: comes yeah, right. and I think I think what's kind of wise about that move as well, other than showing that Jason is really narcissistic and really individualist you know everybody waits on and him insecure. he's yeah insecure, yeah he's not a team player which is his arc he goes from being like hey everybody it's me to everybody taking a bow at the end but what it does really well there is it then puts you in sympathy with justin long and his friends justin, Long's screen justin debut. long yeah. screen debut wow. yeah which yeah. baby justin long he's like 21 there and looks all of 12 and a
1: half yeah <laughs> did you see barbarian last year yeah Oh, He's yeah, freaking hilarious can, in that. Can't you see Barbarian?
2: I did not see Barbarian. Um, oh my god! you fire
1: Patriot Max tonight? All I can say priority.
0: is when when he googles like <laughs> <laughs> that was such a great moment. <laughs> Maybe
1: the hardest I laughed in a theater last year was <laughs> cut to him googling and then him getting the tape measure out.
0: And what's so great about that joke? I know we're not talking about Barbarian, but we're going to talk about Barbarian.
1: Is uh, that's. That that's, maybe should have been a contender possibly. I mean, that was a hell of a movie, man.
0: it's it's so that joke is so in character. It's not yes. a like stupid throwaway line or like a, a a cultural reference. it That's exactly what that guy would do. And it's yeah, yeah it's so good.
1: hell, um. yeah, bitch. <laughs> hell, yeah. yeah, that's that's me quoting Justin Long. Also the cut to him, yeah. the cut to Justin Long, the first time we see Justin Long Barbarian yeah. is. Maybe the most "what the fuck" cut to in any movie I've ever seen. It's up there, and it's worth the price of admission. Honestly, it's just that single cut. <laughs> just <long>. uh, anyway, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I think this is uh, it. It is definitely like an ode to fans of this kind of thing. Um, again, because they do kind of—they're not the Deus Ex Machina, but like you know, their knowledge is their knowledge of the, their obsessive knowledge of the show is shown to be like an asset. And it's what saves our heroes ultimately. It's a, and, um,
2: it's a loving, the, the film is a loving satire, satire right? I mean, it's, it's yeah. making fun of this, but not in, in an ill intent way. It's not trying to make fun or hurt anybody's yeah. feelings. It's not trying to be offensive. It's doing it kind of out of a, a sense of love for these people and, and their fandom and I, this is at a time yeah. it's this is this is 1999 so this is i feel like i, I my, up, yeah. my, the, my the timing me- of this yeah i was going to say my memory might be a little off but comic con only be, really started becoming as big as it, it it is now in the early 2000s phantom so, menace right phantom yeah. menace Came year. right
0: <laughs> yeah i can i think you're exactly right and i think that's part of why i like this so much i'm i'm all down for like a wicked sharp satire love me some dr strange love but what i like so much about this movie is yeah it pokes fun at the nerds but lovingly pokes fun at them it pokes fun at the corniness of star trek but it also likes star trek yes it pokes fun at the hollywood types but it's not too inside baseball If this were made now, given how many movies are made about, like, Hollywood and making movies, it would either be so inside baseball about, like, you know, the grind of making the TV show and who am I and all of this, like, Babylon bullshit, or it would have been, like, a a really fierce takedown of, like, what the fans make us do and it's not fair. And this is just, like, it gets some kind of, like, nudging you in the rib jokes in but it's not mean spirited at all
1: i'm gonna brush past the fact that you just slander babylon on this podcast in front of me and any time <laughs> Anytime. No, no. Should have been a contender. Babylon. Yeah. Well, from we, uh, uh, that the movie knows, knows what it is. Pile of movie. shit. That's the so first thing it is.
0: Pile of shit.
1: Absolutely should have been a contender. In five years, come talk to me about Babylon because everyone will love it. I I'll 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 will, will like, talk, talk to you I about like it because
0: you'll be like, what was that movie? And I'll be like, yeah, everybody forgot. Remember? What
1: I was going to say <laughs> is that I, what what the point I think Ken was about to make, maybe before I interrupted him, was that I think in the 90s, pop culture was a lot meaner to nerds and people who liked this kind of thing. Like I'm thinking, of, I I, really, I don't really watch much Simpsons, but like the, the comic book guy in Simpsons, yes. you know, worst trade ever. Like that's the kind of like, mm. you know, uh, uh, nerd representation you get in pop culture. And like, uh, Big Bang Theory was like popular a few years after this, but it kind of like aged poorly immediately. By like season three of Big Bang Theory, people were like, hey, maybe we should, maybe these people shouldn't be the butts of jokes like this. Um, but I I think that like makes Galaxy Quest age really well because like we live in really different uh, pop culture moment both when it comes to nerd ephemera and also fandoms
2: fandom- and, and particularly think, fandom
1: yeah and fandom and like I I think this movie is really ahead of the curve in in that in that aspect
2: I mean talking about the fandom for a moment mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. they're. The film opens up, as you said, um, at a convention, which is kind of like Mm -hmm. a Comic-Con, clearly, although it seems to be a little more localized. The the key presentation seems to be all about Galaxy Quest, right, at the time?
1: And also... If if Comic Con existed at this point, I, you already it, said when it started. I, I think, think it,
2: God, it did. It it existed, but uh, but it was not of, a
1: huge like right, cultural level of moment popul- that that right. Vanity Fair and the Hollywood Reporter and everyone was writing on. Right. Yeah. I,
2: yeah. It was just coming into its own. Really. Um. It, it was not like it is today. Where I mean, today it's basically. It can be like trying to get a Taylor Swift concert ticket. It's one of the biggest events of the year, yeah,
1: yeah. and you know all the big trails are premiere there and that kind of stuff. And like, it certainly was not that back then.
2: Well, yeah, that's the other thing. Talking, I mean, you look at the film, and these guys are showing up, and there's the the two guys as you referenced in the bathroom who are making fun of Nesmith and all these seemingly, I don't want to say washed up actors, but they're actors that clearly haven't been able to replicate the success they had on this one-time series i mean we even get a peek into um alexander's apartment that's the alan rickman character I mean, he's in this little alan rickman dingy little apartment i also love in that scene he's he still got he doesn't take his head, take his head <laughs> <off> <laughs> in there. the whole he's movie <laughs> like, he's <laughs> at home and he's got some like yeah. I, think, I think he's got some leftover chinese or something yeah. but it's his little apartment and he's like a he's a trained like thanks you know shakespearean actor right that's true thespian and he is absolutely aggravated to still be attached with this but it's clearly Mm -hmm. the only thing that brings him any money and so these guys have to show up to this convention nowadays we're talking a-list stars show up to conventions like this and they are they are they are antsy to participate and interact with the, the fans
1: that's that's a good segue, because I wanted to bring up how this movie came into existence. So there's two scredi- credited screenwriters on this, um, David Howard and Robert Gordon, and it began life as a spec script by David Howard, uh, originally called Captain Starshine, and he uh, got the idea- uh, <laughs> You don't like that as much? Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, he got the idea watching an IMAX presentation of uh, one of those, like- uh americans in space trailers narrated by leonard nimoy um and he started thinking about how like star trek actors all got pigeonholed into their roles since star trek was canceled like leonard nimoy was never anything but spock i feel like Mm -hmm. and like Mm -hmm. you know did things like narrating space documentaries because that is you know he was spock exactly you know um so he came up with the idea of like star trek-esque actors getting pigeonholed for years afterwards not being able to break beyond that and then um also thought okay what if real aliens were involved and that was kind of like the the kernel of the idea and um he said quote in a lot of ways the script wrote itself because it seems so self-evident once the idea was there Hmm. and i believe that because like i said this is such a clean setup a clean premise and i kind of feel like the the movie that follows just it's exactly what it's supposed to be i feel like you know um So then a a producer named Mark Johnson had a first look deal at DreamWorks. He didn't like the script, but was fascinated by the concept because, you know, again, it's a dynamite idea. So uh, he bought the script and then brought on Bob Gordon um, to basically take the original concept from David Howard's script and kind of start fresh to an extent.
0: Um, I don't know where this happened along the way and who's responsible for this, but the villain – Uh, saris is named after film critic andrew saris because really yeah yeah, i think it was the director's (laughs) previous film was lambasted by Mm -hmm. andrew saris so he names the villain which is interesting given that this is the year after roland emmerich's godzilla where the mayor and his sidekick are siskel and ebert yeah Um, mayor ebert that's right yeah. yeah yeah um anyway just just a small thing
1: so, uh, Bob Gordon, uh, apparently he actually did not read Captain Starshine until after the movie was done, but he, he just started with the premise of washed up actors from sci-fi series involved with real aliens and, um, uh, Gordon's cre- drafts were credited with adding more elements of humor to, uh, mm. you know, the existing, uh, David Howard script, right?
0: Can I throw a note on that too? Yeah. So I, I also read that, uh an early cut of this was actually darker and more violent, which is hmm. not much of a surprise to me because th- this is a PG and I thought it was a oh, little yeah. ooh for a PG. It also was highly marketed as a family film. And despite the fact that like everybody in my family likes it, it doesn't feel like a family film to me. Um,
1: there's, the presence it, of Tim Allen, though.
0: True, true. Yeah. It goes In to the late some, 90s. some like dark, emotional places, but one of my favorite things I caught on uh, viewing 39,817 was when uh, Tim Allen and Sigourney Weaver are going down the halls and there's the Pistons, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, if you watch her, at one hour is 17 minutes. <laughs> she says, uh, what the fuck? Oh no! She goes. She goes. Fuck that! Yeah. And it's it's a PG, so you can't right. You can't do that. And so they just put in screw that. But if you watch her mouth, she yes. clearly goes fuck
2: that. <laughs> yes, I noticed I that see. the last yeah. time I watched it because on the Blu-ray, I was I was fr- yeah. visibly frustrated. My wife was like, "What's wrong?" And I'm like, "Look at her face." I paused yeah. it. And I'm like, uh-huh. "She there's it's still it's it's screw that even on the Blu-ray, even uh-huh. though her mouth is clearly oh, yeah. saying yeah. something else." And then there's Uh more
0: bad ADR in the rest of that sequence when they're going through. And he's going, now, now, if you watch it, he's not saying anything. But it's, you know, whatever. It's an otherwise perfect film. Whoever wrote Uh, (laughs) this episode should die. Should die. Yeah. (laughs) Uh,
1: So producer Mark Johnson wanted Dean Parasot. Is that how you say it? Dean Parasot. I believe
2: that's correct, yeah.
1: To direct, who TJ just alluded to. Um, But uh, DreamWorks wanted Harold Ramis. And Harold Ramis was attached for a while. And Harold, it was so. This was almost directed by Harold Ramis and starring Alec Baldwin because that's who Harold Ramis wanted. Uh, Baldwin turned it down. Uh, they tried to get Steve Martin and Kevin Klein as well, but they also turned it down. And um, apparently, Ramis left the project because he didn't want Tim Allen. And oh. once Tim Allen boarded, Harold Ramis left. That would have yeah. been really interesting.
0: Yeah, can I say though? I, I could also see Bill Murray doing this role, younger yeah, Bill Murray. Ah, yeah, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, Tim Allen's great in this. Though. I was going to say and he's know, really good. I know he's yeah. he, notoriously like difficult to work with, or so I've heard. Um, and has been a bit of a persona non grata. But I think he's really good in this because he's got that like tool time Tim charm going on. That you can see he skates by on that charm, but he's also an asshole, but not too heavy to be dislikable. And then right. in the serious moments, um which I'll talk a little bit about later, I think he really brings it there as well.
1: He so I should say that um I'm kind of I'll kind of take a leave to Malon in most cases, but I'm a big, big fan of the Santa Claus. Yeah, like he's I'm really he's Santa really Santa cool. good in the Santa Claus. I was just about to <laughs> say the emotion. This is a really similar lane. <laughs> yeah. This yeah. is an extremely similar lane to the Santa Claus. The yeah. like, dramatic motions
2: and particularly um particularly when saras is forcing him forcing the, the them to um uh yeah. interact with the uh with the yeah, aliens yeah, yeah. particularly with uh, enrico's character um uh forgive Malthazar. me Malthazar. Malthazar. Mals- yeah i yeah. yeah, think you mathers yeah. he's on the table and there is that moment if you watch it if you've watched santa claus anytime recently or even hell if you watched it in the 90s and it's just one of those things that's stuck in your head in your our age um it is very reminiscent of him exp- like getting down on you know at his son's level mm. and trying to explain things to his son in the Santa Claus because as as uh as he's instructed to do by Sarahs, explain it to him as if he were a child that's yeah. mm. exactly what Tim Allen does perfectly yeah. It's also what you if you've ever watched Home Improvement, he does it time and time again in episodes where he has to have serious conversations with the sons
1: uh, apparently Bob Gordon once he wrote that scene where Jason Nesmith confesses to the theremins that he was, you know, their actors. Once he wrote that scene, that's when he was like, okay, this movie's going to work. And he submitted it shortly after writing that screen. That's when that's when he got confidence in the script, according to Wikipedia. Uh, what I wanted to say, though, is like, yeah, uh, I see that moment where he's, you know, explaining as if he, it were to a child that kind of parallels explaining things to Charlie in the Santa Claus. But like, act one, Jason Nesmith is almost exactly act one, Scott Calvin. Yep. Oh, yeah. Santa Claus. Yeah. They're both like Papa Shijo. <laughs> well, that's that's Act Three, yeah. Scott Calvin. Uh, I'm talking about Act One, Scott Calvin. Santa Kaufman.
0: rolling down the block in a
1: Panzer. In a Panzer. That's Act Two, Scott Calvin. Well, I hope you were good this, this year, kids, because it looks like Fuck. Santa
0: naked. just took out the Pearson home.
1: I'm coming. Um, but you know he's he's successful <laughs> and sardonic, also kind of a dick. Yeah. And also like unappreciative of the people in his life that he should be more appreciative of and he's always Um, running late
2: by the way in both mm. movies always
1: running late but also like he is a non-believer in something extraordinary that the audience is ahead of him on Mm -hmm. so we like watch him catch up and that he's selling
2: it's not only something he doesn't believe in it's something he doesn't believe in but is selling like mm. in santa claus he's a toy he's a toy salesman all about Christmas, but he's about the sale. He's not about mm-hmm. the spirit or the heart behind it. Right, in this but like, case, a- he's all he's about like cl- He's all about the show, right? But he's he snaps at those those fans really easily. Mm-hmm.
1: I'm talking about, though, like, when he's, like, climbing the ladder in the Santa Claus and, like, getting in the sleigh, and Charlie's like, put on the suit, Dad. And he's like, why would I put on the suit? Then he's, like, confused when he is dropped into the chimney with a bag of toys. He's like, what am I doing here? What am I – you know? And, again, <laughs> the audience is ahead of him. Like, dude, you're Santa Claus, obviously. Do the Santa Claus thing. And then in this – You're supposed to drink the milk. Supposed to drink the milk. I'm lactose intolerant. <laughs> and then she gets um, him the soy milk. And he's soy milk. I think the mix looks a little sour. Um <laughs> – Santa Claus could also be an unserious film. Person, oh, my gosh. Be honest, like, I a masterpiece. Yeah. But so in this, the equivalent scene in this is when he's first on the spaceship. He wakes up on the spaceship because he fell asleep in the backseat of the limo yep. and, like, doesn't get that he's not in Van Nuys. And and, by like, the way, you have the
2: fact that he's hungover. <laughs> and, like, the, the
1: big... The big doors open and the approximation of the 2001 Space Odyssey music plays, but not quite the 2001 Space yeah. Odyssey music plays. And he's like, what is this? Where am I? And I'm like, dude, you're on a spaceship. Catch up, man. Come on. Cool. Uh, so I, I was like, really, I mean, I, there was not really a moment that this mo- I was not on this movie's wavelength, but I was really on the movie's wavelength there. Because I'm like, oh, it's basically Scott Calvin, mm. except he's an actor in space now instead of being Santa Claus.
0: Can, can we, since we're on this, can we keep going down, like, the cast... Of yeah. characters, the Good. main play because I think the cast is excellent in this, and you can tell that I think by kind of where they go after this as well. Um, we we mentioned previously, you know, Tim Allen, great choice. Sigourney Weaver, great choice. Obviously, Sigourney Weaver was someone before Galaxy Quest. Oh yeah. um,
1: Well, she's you know the sci-fi actress. Yes. You know, she's, so yeah. that's why I think yeah. she was great casting for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She after she
2: aliens an alien. I was gonna say she's the horror sci-fi queen. Um, mm-hmm. Which, in her defense. She is. If you look at this, says something really about, I guess the the way Hollywood has treated female roles generally. But she is one of the first, like, truly badass, independent mm-hmm. female leads in a oh, franchise yeah. uh, with mm-hmm. the Alien franchise. And Sigourney Weaver is an icon, even by this point. I mean, yeah. the woman, the woman, if she showed up to to comic cons or conventions like this in the late '90s. She would have had a, a swarm of fans showing up to, to
1: Alien was twenty years before this. So she'd been an icon for twenty years. Yeah, yeah. By, by the time Galaxy Quest comes out. Yeah. A, and, and a brilliant think,
2: actress on the side too. She's has yeah. got some great. Oscar nominated for
1: Aliens, right? Yeah. Was she not on yeah, she's yeah. And,
2: um she's got that. Uh, she was she was famously double nominated, I think it was the Globes, not the Oscars, but double nominated in one year for Working Girl and Gorillas of the Mist, if mm-hmm. I recall. Good call. Um, both good both both really knock it out of the park kind of performances. Um on different wavelengths though. Very different performances, but both very good. I was I was thinking about her earlier.
0: When I was thinking about the movie as I was jogging in the park, and I was like, she oh, she's goodness. But it was like, she's one of those actresses that she's not one of my favorite, but I'm I, I don't think I can ever say like, ugh, Sigourney Weaver in that. Like she's just always good. Oh, I love, yeah. I love Sigourney um, and, Weaver. And I think in this one, what she does so well is as we mentioned earlier, that the movie is a parody, but it's not razor sharp satire. Uh, she she commits a lot to it. There's not a whole lot of like knowing tongue in cheek self-awareness there. So when she's having that moment where she's like repeating the computer thing and he's like, that's getting yeah. really annoying. And she's like, I have one job Can't on the ship that. and it might be stupid, but I'm going to do it. Um, <laughs> I, I I don't know. I just I think she's I think she's good in this. I like her. She, um, by
2: the way, we're we're talking about her being in a movie like this that is kind of wink winking at her her past. She yeah. does that quite often hereafter because she's mm-hmm. the infamously she's the computer voice in Wally.
0: Yeah.
1: Mm, and she,
2: I think gonna do that. She also pops up in the end of Cabin in the Woods. Yes.
1: Minor spoiler, but yeah, that is a absolute delight she yeah. says First yeah. of all, what a great movie, by yes. the way. And in my uh, top
0: one hundred, if you forgot.
1: Oof. I, I'm an enormous fan of that. and Yeah, her showing up is, uh, as you kind of alluded Ken. she's kind of a sci-fi horror queen. And so that's mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, it's not an accident they cast her for that role at the end of Cabin in the Woods.
0: Um, brief Who else other, in the cast, TJ? Well, brief other story that you can cut if you want. But um, when I was in Canada, I saw Jamie Lee Curtis. And first I saw her on the street and gave her directions to my film school. And second, then she was giving a lecture there. Uh, or like a and a or something. It was just like Jamie Lee Curtis is here and she's friends with Michael Baser who ran the program. So she's doing this and so she's talking and someone in the crowd asked her about acting and your her method and preparation and whatever. And she said that when she was trying out for Laurie Strode, um, she pretty much like read it once and was like, I'll just go kind of wing it and didn't really prep. And she was talking about... Being in the room waiting for the audition and there was a girl next to her who had those same pages like annotated all over within an inch of its life and she was like, oh shit, what am I going to do? Well, history tells you Jamie Lee Curtis gets the role and then she ends the story with and the other girl was Sigourney Weaver. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> oh my god and i just it
0: was such a cool story um, sigourney
2: weaver they're they're good friends apparently i've read that oh. uh, they they actually are good friends but um sigourney weaver always for a long time until she got the alien role was always kind of playing second fiddle because she famously mm. graduated yale drama wow. and with with Who did she meryl graduate streep with? Meryl oh god can what a you imagine bitch. being... Can you imagine... <laughs> okay, I'm, I,
1: I just listened to the Aliens rewatchable, so like I'm stealing a bit from Bill Simmons, but can you imagine being another actress in that Yale oh, drama program in the late 70s, yeah, and you're, you're trying fucked. out for plays? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine trying out for plays against Meryl Streep and Scorning Weaver? <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. Um, anyway, no. so yeah, she's awesome. Um, Tony Shaloub, I think it's really funny in this. He's I didn't get what he was doing when I was younger, where he just like underplays everything.
1: Uh, i love that though yeah they're yeah. just saying that like, i love I, I don't know
0: it's gonna like spontaneous composure or something you know just fyi yeah. um and he's great
1: i, uh, I believe dean paris Parasot, who directed this directed i think the pilot episode of monk yeah he, yes, yeah, he directed he the pilot episode of monk. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, which is
2: a brilliant i love tony shalhoub's performance throughout that show but he's this is this is tony shalhoub he's done a few things in the 90s he's 90s right um, this is right small before small role, he... but role that I like
1: in Men in Black. a Couple of years yes. before this, oh, yeah, yeah. Aliens, yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, and he had a he had a film uh, with uh, Stanley Tucci called Big Night. That was a popular mm. indie film. a Couple of years Cucci. before this, um, he had had a television series right around this same time. I to this day I can remember Stark Raving Mad, and he, he plays like a writer in New York whose last name is Stark. Mm. And it lasted like a season on NBC. It was hysterical, but it didn't get anybody watching it. And so it disappeared. And a couple of years later, fortunately, he gets monk. But this is like right this is before Shaloub really comes into his own. And now he's got a between Monk and the amazing uh Mrs. Mazel, the Marvelous Mrs. Mazel. Oh. He's got I don't know how many awards that he's racked up Abe in the last Weisman. two decades. Hmm.
0: We also have, uh, Sam Rockwell in here as oh, guy like with Rockwell no P. last name. <laughs> and yeah, he's, he's awesome. I mean, he, I think he's finally sort of gotten his due over the last, you know, five, six, Won seven Oscar years. A few years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but he's, he's very funny in this. I was thinking as I was watching it, that if it were made now, that would probably be Charlie Day because they're kind of doing a similar. Yeah. And my, my vote for funniest line of the movie is when they kind of crash land on that planet with the little babies <laughs> and Tony Shalom goes to open the door and he goes, What are you doing? Don't open that door. Is there air? You don't know. Um, I just love that. And like, seems honestly, Sam
1: Sam Rockwell, Sam Rockwell commits in this movie. Yeah, he's kind of doing the opposite of Tony Shalhoub. Uh, It it struck me. um, There's a sequence where Sigourney Weaver and uh, Alan Rickman and Sam Rockwell and the gentleman whose name I already forgot, Dave Mitchell,
2: Daryl Mitchell, Daryl Mitchell, Mitchell. yeah,
1: Daryl Mitchell, Daryl Mitchell. (laughs) I'm sorry, Daryl. They all get like transported or whatever from earth up to the ship and they're all like shaking mm-hmm. and like like they just went through something very intense they're like shaking not speaking sigourney and alan rickman are you know they're pros mm-hmm. there are some of our most acclaimed actors but sam rockwell is fucking committing it's, to his shaking and like vibrating and he's doing it way better than the other three are.
2: although that scene is it is it's it's like a cherry on top when Shaloub shows up He was like, "Oh, that was something. That was 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 something. What's up with uh, With them?"
1: Also, my my favorite line that I thought was funny is uh, same similar scene. TJ when they're leaving that alien planet (laughs) and. those little children aliens are revealed to be vicious and they're running away. And uh, Sigourney so, Weaver says, let's get out of here before one of those things kills Guy."
0: They just know that he's going to, yeah. well,
1: because the running joke was yeah. he only appeared in one episode of the original show, episode 81. I think? Yeah. Two. And he was, yeah,
2: 81. you're right. It's 81. He was huh? killed yeah.
1: before the first commercial yes. break. Yeah.
2: Yes. And
1: oh. he like, he, he tags along with them on this mm-hmm. journey. Cause he wants to be part of the crew. And um, but he also knows that he'll be the first one killed. And then if, that, so so he's killed. overly
2: he's overly cautious about everything because at first when they don't know that the that the little the little like children aliens are vicious, he's yeah. the one warning. Did you guys when, like, ever watch the show? Hey, did you ever watch the show? Like they'll turn <laughs> they'll
0: turn when n- they, they'll turn nasty <laughs> when they crash land at the end and the guys announcing all the other people that come out. And he goes another shipmate, <laughs> <laughs> which is great. Um, well, Alan Rickman. Um, i think alan, alan rickman, rickman is the best part of this movie um in my opinion and especially because that's another character that a lesser actor turns really intolerable but he's so like sardonic that you are in on the joke and i i think his timing is pretty brilliant in this it is. yes it's
2: perfect it is. and can we talk pause a moment how great it is that they managed to get alan rickman for this movie <laughs> because it feels like in retrospect this is not a movie that you expect to see alan rickman in mm. and yet he is all in i mean he, yeah. he, he's he's he is playing it straight the whole movie and he delivers it better than anybody else could possibly have done and the
0: length that i mentioned as timing but like the length he can string something out and then nail the punchline like when they're at that uh car dealership or whatever is kind yeah. of announcing the thing <laughs> and he won't do that line by the hammer of Hrothgar, whatever the hell it is and then he's like the savings are out of this world <laughs> <laughs> like he's just he's wonderful um and then a couple last oh sorry were you gonna say something about on, that i'll now? talk more yep. about
1: alan rickman uh, i want to say that uh According to Wikipedia, he was interested in the role because of the comedy more so than the sci-fi elements. Mm. And uh, he he was quoted as saying, "I love comedy almost more than anything. This really is one of the funniest scripts I've ever read. Mm. And actors are probably the only professionals who send themselves up. We actually have a sense of humor about ourselves, so that's what uh mm. enticed him to the role. By Grapthar's hammer, by the sons <laughs> of <World War. laughs> you will. be And that's back. the other thing is that that moment is so well set up and, when that like, pays definitely, off oh it does definitely the the emotional moment of the movie by like a country mile and actually so i hadn't seen this before i don't think i'd seen this in its entirety before we watched i watched it this week but i had for some reason seen that scene i don't know if like i don't know if my brother was watching this at some point i just walked in at that moment but i had seen that scene before so i knew that was coming but like he he said like his one character thing Pretty much the whole movie is, I'm above this, and I'm sick of saying that line. Mm-hmm. He says, I'm sick of saying that line, I don't know, six, seven times, something like that.
2: <laughs> but he's got and but he's got a fan in Quillick. There's the one <laughs> Thermian who just adores him and looks well, up to him. Well,
1: that, but also, like, you know, when they're at the convention in the first scene, like, everyone... The only thing people say to him is that. Right. Like, I grab Thor's hammer and does the thing, and, like, he's so over it and so sick of it and so above it. And, like, you know, not to... <laughs> He, he he thinks he's above it he thinks it's dumb and he thinks anybody that likes it is like simple minded but like the fact that people that it's meaningful to, to people means something you know that's mm-hmm. kind of the payoff mm-hmm. right the fact that he may think he's above it he may think it's stupid but like the fact that it means a lot to somebody else mm-hmm. therefore he kind of sees the the value in it, i guess or the power in it it speaks
2: yeah. it, it speaks and this is something that we hear often from actors who are in popular franchises or tv series or movies or something like that and um it's not in, in fact I've, I've heard William Shatner talk about this and I think Leonard Nimoy and Patrick Stewart all have discussed people coming up to them and talking about yeah you know having a fa- you know having watched the series with their dad or their mom or their uncle or something or the grandfather and you know that somebody who may have been sick or before they died, you know, this is like a, a strong memory that they have and that it, it comforted them to watch this. And it mm-hmm. therefore, you know that, yes, it's a silly show, but it does occupy a place in these people's lives, as it does for yeah. all of us. Because if you're a fan of something, it does mean that you've given a little bit of yourself over to that thing. It, it, even yeah. th- you can acknowledge that it's, it's not like the end all be all. But it is important to you. And Alexander's problem, which requires, you know, this is where the arc comes in. He doesn't appreciate that early on. He's, I, he's, yeah.
1: Who he thinks is above it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I, I want to get to this a little more later because it's something I heard
0: Josh say a long time ago. But um, thinking about both sort of what Star Trek did culturally, socially, um, but then also the way people quite literally view Star Wars as a religion. I want to come back to those things later. I know this isn't Star Trek and Star Wars at the center, I don't know that. But we are playing in the same sandbox here. Um can I can I just wrap up like a couple, two more, two more cast
1: members real quick? The only the last thing I want to say about Alan Rickman, sorry, is that I didn't think I could do an Alan Rickman impression until I tried saying his name in his voice. And he is one of those people that that's how you get into the impression. It's basically him, Michael, Alan Rickman, and Michael Caine. Michael Kane. Cain. Cain. Cain, and also Christopher Walken you say his name and suddenly two mice <laughs> fell into a bucket of cream, you know. <laughs> <That's> uh, <it.
0: laughs> uh we mentioned Justin Long. Um I, I had to look this fellow's name up and I recognized him from nineties sitcoms or something, but it was just Enrico Colantoni, yes. Uh, yes. yes. Uh who yes. Plays, yes. plays Malthazar. He's and I read
2: at this time on Just Shoot Me, which was a must see TV Thursday NBC show. So
0: I yeah, he uh Apparently, they liked
2: his the, the
0: way of talking was not written in, and they liked him so mm-hmm. much that they showed like everybody else who was auditioning like this is how you're going to read this.
1: I, I really like how he says his lines. He yeah,
0: I like a lot. okay. The scene that okay. that you mentioned earlier about when Tim Allen has to tell him like this is this is all a lie and it's made up. Okay, that guy is like expressing completely having his world shaken and his heart broken for this thing that he absolutely believed in and his hero lied to him. And he's doing that, like, as an alien?
1: And, like, kind of smiling? Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. only because, yeah. like, he doesn't really know what frowning is, basically. Yeah, like, yeah.
2: Well, it's just, it's also, yeah, that his mouth just drops open. hmm In the, the moment yeah, he, understands, mean, he understands. Because yeah. he understands the lie. Which is another, by the way, brilliant, it, it's it's a little thing. But describing the profession of acting or pretending effectively like explaining to a child it's a lie mm, mm-hmm. is yeah. a brilliant addition to the script that mm-hmm. it, it says an awful lot and it cre- I mean it, it it speaks to the the nuance involved in the medium and how uh, how we view certain certain actions or certain well we'll say lies if they're all lies it it speaks to an interesting aspect of how we view the profession of acting Mm -hmm. um but as an aside or or uh, that's that is an aside um his performance throughout the film you can see it guide all of the other thermians as you said it is i didn't realize that the fact that they showed the other actors playing the thermians his audition makes perfect sense in retrospect because mm-hmm. not only is he the leader on screen, but, I mean, his character really sets the bar for how this species is supposed to act and operate. Which
1: 24 yeah. years later, I still remember his line from the trailer, we need your help. I guess
2: I remember that. <laughs> we need from the trailer. your help. <laughs> the, also, he's got, a, he's got a bunch of supporting actors who have yet to hit it big yeah
1: speaking of nbc sitcoms <laughs> there we
2: go that was the last two i wanted to talk about dwight
1: rain, rain wilson rain
0: wilson shows up and also then kind his of film debuts
1: kind of disappears yeah um, yeah he's in like the first couple scenes but yeah. he's not really on the ship later is he's he? he's with no. them when
2: they go to pick up uh when they go pick up Tim allen when they go yeah pick up to nesmith and then yeah. Yeah, he disappears later on we do get missy pile Ah, who is I love Missy hilarious? Pyle what snap. happened to her?
1: She she had uh, this that she's Z great was in, in Gone Girl,
0: Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. She's, she's hilarious great in Dodgeball.
1: In. Speaking of John Dodgeball,
0: Franz Stanovskovich Davudovichski. Yeah, yes. And the moment in she, here, she ends up
1: with uh, that dude from Avatar and uh, Grandma's Boy. Yes,
0: yes. But the the moment in the limo where he's like she doesn't talk and like her transmitter doesn't work and she goes whoa, whoa,
1: whoa, like that. it's so good it's so good. Um, um, also, she's she's incredible in Gone Girl as like a Nancy Grace type. She's incredible. I don't
0: remember her in that. What? No, sorry. She's the, she yeah. plays a Nancy Grace type okay. in Gone Girl. Okay. Oh my god. I'll have to watch Dude, it again.
1: Catch up. Should have been a contender. Gone Girl should have been a contender. Um, who else?
0: No, that's that's the people I wanted to highlight. Yeah.
1: Then I guess I, I want to say that um I thought the Justin Long setup payoff with the like transmitter was really really well done to the point that like so in the like end of first act ish Tim Allen has just been to the alien ship for the first time and he is like he has like an actual transmitter from the what are the aliens called? The Thermians. The Thermians. He has an actual transmitter from the Thermians that is designed to mirror the transmitters they had on the show. So it looks like a show prop because again, they kind of based a lot of their technology based on the historical documents, quote unquote. So he has an actual transmitter from the Thermians. He's like running to go find the rest of his cast so he can tell them about what happened to him. And he collides with Justin Long and his dork friends. And Justin Long has a prop transmitter and they like, swap he tim allen picks up the prop one justin long picks up the real one and so when tim allen goes to his castmates and says look i have proof that i was on an alien ship it's just a prop and i i thought you know when that happened when like the switch happened i thought i thought tim allen looking like an idiot in front of his cast was going to be was going to be it and that was the whole thing and i kind of rolled my eyes a little bit like you know oh it's the classic like oh he doesn't have mm-hmm. proof anymore he did now he doesn't now he looks like a fool i thought that was going to be it and the fact that they use that late act two, start act three, to like contact Justin Long because he knows every inch of the ship they're on because he's a fan of the show and like <laughs> and he walks no, them through.
0: No one knows tunnels one through 28 better than his friend.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and like he, he walks them through uh, how to turn off the self-destruct or whatever mm-hmm. on the ship. So, like, the choppers. The fa- yeah, Yeah. The, the fact that that paid off uh, in a way that I, like I, I'd already kind of forgotten, honestly, mm-hmm. that Justin mm-hmm. Long had that. Like, so the movie got me. Like it really did. It worked really well.
0: And what I like so much about that as well is it works with one of the things that I think is maybe incidentally, I'm not going to, a lot of my students, when I try to like read and interpret things to them, they'll be like, but the author didn't intend that, which is like a high school complaint. Like you yeah, later grow yeah, up and realize like these things have lives to themselves the afterward. Curtains but,
1: were blue or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, and, and this is kind of a segue into that, which is, in that moment of him switching those or accidentally switching those you get the guy who as you mentioned earlier is the non-believer in and having proof at that moment rushing to kind of become the the prophet of it switching and thus blending the reality with the fantasy because that's Mm. the reality and the fantasy is the thing that now has sort of like shaken his world or shaken his paradigm um and at this point, before I get into my next point, can I throw it to Josh for the Star Wars religion thing that I teased earlier?
1: Yeah, what, 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 what am I supposed to say
0: about Star Wars being a religion?
1: <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I'll, I'm actually cribbing this from somebody else. I'm actually cribbing this from Craig Mazin, who's the creator of Chernobyl and The Last of Us on HBO. Uh, he's the host of a popular podcast called Script Notes that I've been listening to for the last eight years.
0: Don't plug other podcasts on here unless Craig's I coming mean, on as a guest.
1: Um, i'd like to introduce craig mason <laughs> um he said they were talking about star wars this was many many years ago on the script notes but he said that like if star wars had been created a thousand years ago it would now be a religion today like that's how like much lore there is and how much people buy into it like right now it's just like in the biggest enormous fandom and like one of the biggest pop culture phenomenon to ever happen in the 20 20th or 21st century but like had it existed a long time ago it would now be a religion which is which, which is has, like the level of star Wars.
2: which is funny <laughs> given the influence religion had on george lucas i think writing. he's right though i think it would be is the thing like mm-hmm. i don't think he's wrong well and it's
0: I'm, it's highly mythic and it's working through the joseph campbell stuff um and you know, moral, the monomyth like, for sure yeah good and
1: bad and, and mm-hmm. paths that you can follow yeah yeah I mean? yeah and so with that in mind
0: then it it's it makes sense that Jason would meet these aliens and view them just as people that have sort of gone all in on the fandom to the point that it's a religion. Mm-hmm. Um And that's the way he's interpreting it for them. But for them, it's not really a real... I mean, it kind of is a religion in the sense that it, they've built their reality around these stories that that yeah, are, are that. foundational yeah. texts for them. Mm-hmm. And because it wasn't fantasy for them, they created a reality out of that and what i think is so interesting about this movie coming in 1999 which is like really the height of i, I shouldn't say that a height of american postmodernism within popular culture is that this movie is sorry i'm going to get really pretentious here like even more no, so i'm going go to go i'm going to go to 12 this on the is, pretension hey, scale
1: take something silly and talk about it seriously that's what well, i want unserious film people to be there we go um
0: it's <laughs> <laughs> Jean Baudrillard, who is a French philosopher oh, and oh cultural okay. theorist, you know what? Scratch that. Take it back. Uh, <laughs> as a, oh, my mic, which just went, did you cut my mic? I know. <laughs> no, that's a joke. Uh, wrote a book in the '80s called *Simulacra and Simulation*, and in that he talks about uh, maps of hyperreality being a map of reality, and that there, we're beginning to construct these maps of reality that are becoming so accurate and intricate and detailed and thorough that they are subsuming and absorbing reality. Now this seems like duh to us now in 2020, but in the 1980s people were like, what are you talking about? Where we were beginning to reproduce things and create like a virtual world. There's a Borges story about a guy that makes a map so detailed that it ends up being the actual size of the thing that he's mapping. And once you once you do that then the 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 real is indistinguishable from this hyper real or this simulation.
1: Synecdoche, New York.
2: Yeah.
0: The Matrix is is Matrix. operating the, similarly. Another right? nineteen
2: ninety nine film. Another
0: nineteen ninety-nine film. Being John Malkovich is kind of working mm-hmm. in this territory, right? Uh what, Truman Ga- Show. Also nineteen ninety nine. See? See what I mean? Um, yeah. and Galaxy Quest, the other masterpiece from that from that nineteen ninety nine year, is is I'm not suggesting they sat down and read Baudrillard for it, but they're doing this thing where it's like, what if there's a, a fan base so devoted to this that they actually create a reality out of it? Well, on one hand, you can look at it the way Jason does, which is like, look at these dorks. And that's kind of a lot of the way that fan culture is taken. But to get back to that Star Wars point, I'm bringing it home, I promise. Um, if if people were able to make it a religion, and if these... Th- um thermal. there we go um have actually created a ship based on the image of a ship that is actually just this what is more real at that point right and i think that's a really interesting and complicated movie a complicated thing that the movie is kind of operating in is the way in which you know he the one guy i'm sorry i forget his name but that was friends with Alan Rickman later and he says even though I've never met you I've always thought of you as a father Mm. that's again in Baudrillard's book where he talks about watching television you watch television so much that there's no Alan Rickman to you there's just Professor Snape and also people watching a television show for so long that you feel like you're friends with Monica and Chandler Right. but Monica and Chandler don't exist and they don't have a fucking clue you exist um And, and I think, I don't know, I think all of that's in Galaxy Quest in interesting ways.
1: Yeah, um, and it's, it's pretty profound, too. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Sorry. And turning the pretension meter down to eight now.
1: <sighs> so, TJ, I think you just made a very interesting case as to why this is good, but that is, like, something I wanted to ask... Did yeah, that make? Did that make sense? Did that make sense? It, 100%, did, yeah. Okay.
2: I just thought it was Yeah. Okay. Which is okay. I think to to its credit, the film is aware. It's aware of that yeah. fact. It's trying to do mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. It's it's a little subtle, and maybe it's not what everyone yeah. picked up on during first watch. Yeah. But the film is absolutely wanting you to see that. Yeah. Eventually. That they've
0: they, they've built a replica that's more real than the thing itself. And and I do love. Sorry, Josh. I cut you off, and I'll get back. I'm sorry. Um. That it makes that point without hammering that over the head it also makes the point about like diverse casting in popular television shows without hitting that over the head it makes the point about females being subjugated to like thankless roles where they just repeat the computer without really beating that over
2: the head there's a lot of stuff they're they're just boobs her, her uniform she complains about her uniform multiple times
0: yeah yeah um And I don't know, I just think there's a lot of threads you can pull there that aren't too heavy-handed. Sorry, Josh.
1: Well, thanks for answering the question before I ask it, which is something I want to say in every episode of Unserious Film, people, is like, why is this good? Why is it watchable and or popular, if it's popular? And, you you know, maybe in the edit I'll just, like, insert that question before your explanation. (laughs) I'm not actually going to do that because it's too much work for me, but you just gave your answer. Okay. before b- before we do that though, I want to talk uh, h- how this movie was received. I guess real quick. Um, <laughs> we haven't played a box office game in a while, but I want to on this one. Nice. So this was released uh, Christmas Eve, nineteen ninety nine. So okay. Christmas weekend, nineteen ninety nine. Uh, it opened number seven. It, it this did good business. Uh, it was uh, budget forty five million. It made seventy one domestically, ninety worldwide, which is like a sign. That's a you know solid double you know nothing crazy but good business um it never was more than like fifth at the box office in a given week so like it was just kind of up against tough competition uh with that in mind it opened at number seven any guesses as to what else was playing at the oh u.s God. box office uh, well christmas 1999
2: well uh was phantom menace playing still strong that month I think that was like May, wasn't it? That came out in May. It
1: it was 34th at the box office, in it's 32nd week, and it brought in uh, $114,000 just ahead of Pokemon, the first movie, Mewtwo Strikes Back, which brought in $112,000, which I believe I saw in theaters when I was in fourth grade.
0: This this might have been a summer movie as well, but is Toy Story 2 on there?
1: Toy Story 2 was not a summer movie, actually. I believe that was a... October. Okay. No, November movie. What's and it? that is uh that that's fourth at the hey! box office. All right. Yeah, yeah. Bringing in ten million and its in its sixth week. It's okay. already up to one seven. No, it's already up to one seventy seven. Yeah. nineteen
2: ninety nine. Six Cents has got to be in there somewhere, right? Oh, that's this is, uh,
1: I believe that was also a summer movie, but no. yeah, that was a summer movie, but it's it's in the it's in the twenty third spot, and it's in, in week fifteen. But it brought in two hundred thousand. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, it's in week twenty one, but it brought in two hundred thousand. Um. Was number one number one is a uh, sports drama, I guess you would say. Sports drama. Sports drama, number one. I would give you the director, but it would, it would give it away. Can you tell us the give sport? The actor,
2: football. Oh, any Foot given Sunday? Remember the year. Titans.
1: Any... any given Sunday, oh. making 13 and a half mil. Wow. Good old Ollie Stone. Uh, number two, the box office World is of Ali- a... Is, there's a
2: James Bond movie there that year, right? The World Is Not Enough?
1: Uh, the World is Not Enough is in the 11th spot uh, mm. in its second week. That's pretty disappointing, actually. Oh, I'm sorry. It's in its sixth week. I misread. Sixth week. Was it's this the, the
0: Christmas of Stuart Little?
1: This is the Christmas of Stuart yes! Little, yes. That's that's uh, that's in the three spot. It was number one last week. That was a yes was for un- me getting
0: it right. I actually don't like Stuart Little that much. But.
1: Uh, so Stuart Little was number one the previous week. It was unseated by both Any Given Sunday and the number two movie, which is also opening this week, which is an adaptation of a famous novel from the 50s, I want to say takes place in the 50s, um, starring a guy we talked about uh, last week. People listening to this don't know what we're talking about because that episode won't come out until August, nah, but we talked about it last man. week. Oh. Oh. The
0: Talented Mr. Ripley? No, no. The Talented Mr. Oh. Ripley. Oh!
1: Yes. Patty Highsmith, right? That's Patricia yeah. Highsmith, isn't yeah. 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 I like that movie. Yeah. So uh, your top five is Any Given Sunday, Talented Mr. Ripley, Stuart Little, Toy Story 2. Number five is The Green Mile. Oh. Which okay. is another great movie. Uh, number six, opening this week is as well, is uh, Man on the Moon. I oh. that, that also came out in 99. Yeah. yeah. Jim Carrey, a Big 99. Yeah. Uh, and number seven is uh, Galaxy Quest. So your top seven, Any Given Sunday, Talented Mr. Ripley, Stuart Little, Toy Story 2, The Green Mile, Man on the Moon, Galaxy Quest. Number eight, Bicentennial Man. Ugh. Number, number nine, Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God.
1: And uh, number 10, Anne and the King, 11, World's Not Enough, Sleepy Hollow. Ah. You got Cider House Rules in there. You got American Beauty hanging in there. You got Being John Malkovich hanging in there. We used to be a proper country. <laughs> we used to we used to make movies here.
2: Well, the fact that a we movie used make like movies in this country, being John Malkovich is in the top like fifteen. That's.
1: <laughs> uh, I mean, it's in the top eighteen, but it was in the top eleven the previous week. Right. I mean, it's, it's in its ninth week, and still in the and top still, twenty. That's
2: what I mean. That's that's good for a movie uh, that today would not. be... I mean, that would be a, that would be limited box office success, right? We'd be talking about <laughs> yeah. oh, it just was released in New York and L. A. and it's making you know uh, eighty thousand per screen or whatever, and then fizzles out once it goes wide.
1: But it got... So like I said, it did pretty good business. It got pretty solid reviews too. But like, Mm. I think the reviews have gotten warmer in the intervening years. Like it had like a warm reception, but now it's like pretty... heralded, maybe too strong of a word, but like
2: it's aged really well.
0: As more people become familiar with Baudrillard's work, I think it really... (laughs)
2: Well, I remember a couple – 2023 now, while we're, we're talking about it, a few years ago, uh, I think it was around the 20th anniversary probably, there was a documentary called Never Surrender that came out. And I believe it was produced by Fandom, the website, <laughs> and the Screen Junkies folks, um, Roth Cornett and Dan Merle and, and those folks over there at Screen Junkies. Um, and it's it, it did get all of the players – involved in the the film um it's a behind the scenes documentary i have seen it it is actually pretty good um they do it and they do address some of the behind the scenes goings on as uh, josh you were alluding to earlier um pre-production as far as the jostling of who's directing and who's supposed to lead and stuff like that um, Tim Allen is open and willing to talk about all of that uh, <laughs> for obvious reasons um, it, it pays off for him obviously but uh, that's a worthwhile documentary if you haven't seen it I'd recommend it
0: yeah I'll check that out
2: and
1: as I told you guys as I told you guys over text uh, David Mammett the acclaimed playwright and screenwriter and director maybe one of the greatest writers of the 20th century honestly uh, in his 2008 book, called Bambi vs. Godzilla on the nature, purpose, and practice of the movie business. He included Galaxy Quest in a list of four, quote-unquote, perfect films. So he talked about four perfect films, one of which was Galaxy Quest. In in
2: fairness, one of the the great writers of the 20th century, one of the um, strangest and and more uh, unusual writers of the 21st century, he's really— That's uh, a very good way to put it. He's cut off the reservation. Maybe, uh, and he wrote this book in two thousand
1: eight. So maybe he was already off the reservation. But the other three movies were The Godfather, A Place in the Sun, and Doddsworth, the William Wyler movie from the thirties. <laughs> wow. And then Galaxy Quest was the four, rounded out the four spot in his list of perfect films. Uh,
2: I, you know what? I kind of respect that uh, combination of titles.
1: It is the Godfather of late nineties sci fi. Actually, knows <laughs> not the Matrix is. I
2: I will put my, okay. Having having seen all of. All of the Star Trek films, uh, I I feel like I can say this with some confidence. I think, I don't know if it's the best, but it is certainly my favorite Star Trek movie. Um, And I would make an argument for it being the best. Because while um, the other Star Trek movies require, obviously, knowledge of the Star Trek universe, um, they are to varying extents campy, but they're not necessarily always intending to be that way. Um, they're not always self-aware galaxy quest is is a perfect send-up and homage to this particular uh subgenre of sci-fi so um yeah i i'm i don't have a problem with people holding it in such high regard
1: and i think that's a perfect answer from Ken on why this is popular and why this works and why this is good and why this should be taken kind of seriously even though it's not very serious um yeah, I mean, I'll just echo everything you guys have said that I think it's like TJ, you especially said it's like a satire, but there's like not really mean spirited, mm-hmm. you know, or yeah. even like, it,
0: Horatian satire. I don't know what that means. Um, it's lighter, more, more parody, like less cutting. Juvenalian is more cutting.
1: But I also think like, you know, as I've said on this podcast before, like I'm, I'm a sucker for a clean premise and this has a, such a great premise that like. A great elevator pitch. You hear what the premise is. You kind of immediately know what the movie is. And, like, it hits all the beats that you think it's going to hit. But also surprising in some way. I kind of already mentioned how, like, some of the setups and payoffs caught me off guard. And I'm usually pretty good about seeing those kinds of things. It's not, like, it's not a super sophisticated story. But, like, it's extremely well done. And, like, it is, um, I think, charmingly performed, smartly written, and, like, an honestly ingenious setup.
2: I think it's it's key. Exactly what you just said when you say it's well done. Everything it sets out to do, I think it achieves. Even to even to TJ's point, there is depth and substance beneath the surface. That again, not to not to I, I don't want to ding the Star Trek universe. There are some really entertaining films in that franchise, um, but there's not the level of depth and substance in most of those movies that exists here in what is supposed to be a parody or satire of it. And so I, I think the film delivers where maybe real sci-fi films, not just Star Trek, but the sci-fi genre in general, even uh, any serious film, it, it speaks to where satire can sometimes, I think, achieve something that a, a film playing straight can't. Mm. Um, it delivers all of the points it's trying to do. And it, it's not an eye rolling you know, journey for the, the viewer. You're mm. enjoying it both on the surface and uh, if you watch it more than once, hopefully, uh, you can pick up on all the little, little nuggets and little, uh, little prizes that you can find along the way, including, to TJ's point, all of those pretentious ideas and <laughs> concepts that wash over you the first time you watch it.
0: Yeah, which I do enjoy movies, by the way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, Can I, can I, I, I since we're wrapping up, but can I get to one segment I'd like to do on unserious film people? This is the, while we're not saying any, this movie should have been nominated for any Oscars. If you had to nominate this movie for an Oscar, what would it be? And this has no, no reflection on other things that were nominated that year. So you don't have to go in and say, I would sub out this. This is just a way of saying what's like the, you think is a standout thing about this film, about the craft of this film. Uh, I think. Oh, no, go, go, ahead. Ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. Go first. I've got three. So go ahead. <laughs>
1: okay. I'll go first then. Um. I don't want to overstate anything because I'm not a fan of hyperbole, but I challenge you to find like a more emotional and better payoff than Alan Rickman's line about Grabthar's hammer as the guy is dying in his arms. Like that really, really, really worked for me. And like, when you think about the context of what that line means to the person dying in that moment and what that line means to Alan Rickman speaking it and like everything that came before it, like, He's so focused on playing Richard the Third and his five curtain calls, but that's the most important moment of his life. Mm-hmm. You know, that's more important than Richard the Third, and something that he had been so dismissive of. Um, so, Alan Rickman, best supporting actor for me. If if I'm given an Oscar to anybody or nominating anybody, that
0: was my first choice. Yeah.
1: All right.
2: Nice. Cool. Okay. Ken. Uh, I would go original screenplay. Uh, oh, I really, that's choice, I really. Yeah. This is one of those movies that. Um, Every once in a while, the Oscars and other award shows during the award season will throw a random, uh, highly entertaining, like, you remember the year Bridesmaids was nominated for screenplay? Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's a film that... the And Best Supporting Actress. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And Melissa McCarthy, fantastic in that movie. And it feels well-deserved, and everyone feels in on it. Like, everyone saw those films, Mm -hmm. and everyone can talk about them. Galaxy Quest is... I think a really, really well written screenplay. Even if mm-hmm. it's not getting any of those other nominations, I you gotta you gotta tip your cap to the writers.
1: I'm not saying that this that Galaxy Quest is as well written as the movie I'm about to say, but it, it kind of reminds me of like how Knives Out snuck in with Best Rangel Screenplay. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I could have seen that happening with Galaxy Quest. Like again, mm-hmm. Knives Out is a far, far better written movie, but like you know, I could have seen it happening.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, that was another one of my picks. So I'll get to my last one. Uh, right. Original score. Ah, yes. uh, I yeah. thought the score was good. It, it's catchy. It sounds like kind of the Star Trek TV score, but isn't exactly the same thing. And there's, there's some riffs on it as they go on various adventures. And I think it's just a, a nice, jaunty little beat.
2: Mm-hmm. It's a really nice score. Yeah. And it, it's played well throughout the film because as Joss was talking about, there are emotional payoff payoff moments throughout the film that require the right uh complementary music Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. right complementary sound and they do nail it so you've got this kind of like yeah it's it's an unserious score that they're able to like weave in and just through volume and certain instruments um figure out how to how to place it just right so that it highlights some of the more emotionally uh uplifting or or uh, in the sense of Quillix death, uh, mm-hmm. heavier scenes.
1: Anything else on Galaxy Quest? Anything else on our first unserious film people foray?
2: Uh, let me give one critique. This
0: worked on me okay. big time when I was a young kid. Um, uh-huh. The omega thirteen like <laughs> bait yeah. and switch ending. When I was yeah. a little kid, I was like, no, they're all gonna die, and then there's the thing. You're like, oh. As you know, on my forty-seven thousand viewing, but also just as somebody that knows movies more now, that's like pretty. You can see that coming pretty far away. But also nitpick, that's not thirteen seconds. Yeah, no. no. So, so <laughs> yeah. why? But, but then why not? And that's fine. That there was slow mo. You can't slow-mo. do all that. There was slow mo. No, no, no. Though. Even before it, I timed it this time. Even before oh my it. Oh, God, you dork. Um,
1: <laughs> you Justin Long.
0: Um, the uh, why not just change the name to it? Like you're editing, and you're like, hey. That can't, we can't do it in 13 seconds? Fine. It's the Omega 35. But I don't... It, it just... Anyway.
1: I don't know, man. That's how you want to end the episode? You want, <laughs> <laughs> you want to do this now? You want to do this now? Well, I hope you enjoyed this listening. I think this was really fun, and I think we should put this on the main feed. I think this is uh, oh. this is main feed worth. I mean, what do you think?
0: I, I Of course. Um, okay. Because the
1: yeah. idea was to put something on the main feed that would, like, put our best foot forward, unserious film person-wise... It's, to entice people to join our Patreon, which I believe five dollars a month gets you access to these episodes on Patreon. I believe which we'll have one or two of these a month, probably. Right?
0: Yeah, I think we ambitiously said we were going to try to do two. One, Serious film people. One should have been a contender. Well, we per month, about that. but
1: and we'll see what we'll yeah. see what the people want. You know, we'll see what they're clamoring for. So we'll see. Um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed this. I enjoyed it. TJ enjoyed it. I think mm-hmm. Ken hated it.
2: <laughs> Ken, Ken uh, was
0: I, drinking straight out of a Jim Beam bottle.
2: It was a it was a wine glass. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, I, mean, I look. I enjoy this, the, giving me a reason to rewatch uh, Galaxy Quest anytime. I'm all for it. This is uh, this is a fun departure from Out of Africa or <laughs> Kiss of the Spider Woman or Hey. <laughs> Oh come on, eighty five just was a brutal. Or
1: the Snake Pit, <laughs> Ken, Mister nineteen forty eight. I we, like the nineteen eighty five movies more than nineteen forty eight movies. We got to get the th- latter, We got to get
2: through. Hey, you know what? Nineteen forty eight at least had Treasure of the Sierra Madre and the Red Shoes. So I'm 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 rolling up my sleeves and Marty Scorsese and I are coming for you, Josh.
1: You know what? It's funny. Speaking of script notes that I already mentioned early in the podcast, uh, I was just listening to. I was catching up, like on my drive home today, and they're talking about like the prospector archetype and like gold panners <laughs> and how like both hosts of the show both John August and Craig Mazin both like could immediately picture what a prospector looks like guy with a big beard floppy hat and suspenders and baggy pants doing like a little jig because he's happy <laughs> that he fought, found gold and they were talking like why do we both have that image what's like the source text of that image what like what that had to have come from somewhere that suddenly a, a ubiquitous image that everyone already knows and the next episode a listener wrote in and said you're thinking of Walter Houston yeah. in Treasure of Sierra Madre. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's why you think of that because he was the he's probably the source text mm-hmm. of the prospector archetype. So, I believe when this Galaxy Quest episode comes out, we'll probably be putting out the Treasure of Sierra Madre episode shortly thereafter. Yeah, or, yeah, probably. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I think that's a great episode too. So listen to that. Mm-hmm. Uh listen to the, the rest of our main feed. I hope you enjoyed this patreon only content on the main feed if you want more of this cough up some dough uh if you cough up even more dough i think it for ten dollars a month you can actually vote on uh Unseer's film person movies potentially he's just making faces if he doesn't want that to happen but oh no no i don't know i, I you, you don't you want, the the, to you you want the people you so set the dictatorship i did set the tears as so long true, as i'm yes. the
0: dictator <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is not a democracy it's a dictatorship
2: do you think that should have been a contender? Remember the Titans.
1: Mm. Oh, to be continued.
2: If that is a okay, good, well, really good yeah. film. We got we got a response from TJ.
1: Uh, I like the movie. I mean, it's a
0: really good movie. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's which one it goes into, but I
1: don't know if it's unserious film people. I think people take a movie semi-seriously. Okay. Or maybe, I don't know. Maybe not. Mm, I, don't I don't know,
0: know either.
2: Yeah. But should they find out?
0: Subscribe to the Patreon to find
2: out. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, find out if and when Remember the Titans fits into either of our buckets, and. Uh, Yeah, thank you for listening. We'll see you in the main feed. Bye bye. See ya.
2: Mike Rackthar's
0: hammer. (laughs)